Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This podcast is being recorded as part of the 40th Critical Care Congress here in San Diego, California. My guest today is Dr. Cindy L. Monroe, Ph.D. R.N. F.A.A.N., and she is currently a professor of nursing at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Nursing in Richmond, Virginia, and she's also co-editor of the American Journal of Critical Care. She's with us today to discuss mouth care and VAP prevention, a topic she presented as part of the Critical Care Congress, as well as some of her other uh, research projects that she's uh, done in the past. And we're very excited about having her here as part of the podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you for asking me. Uh, as you and I were talking about before, I was, I was fascinated with your background and the concept of nurses being drawn into research. Uh, and I'd love to hear sort of your personal story and maybe some of your perspectives on, on nurses that end up uh, being part of academic uh, medicine. Well, I began my nursing career as a uh, critical care nurse, actually, and very interested in cardiopulmonary nursing, and that's actually what my master's degree was in, as as a cardiopulmonary clinical nurse specialist. And I really was more and more interested in the research base for care. And so as my master's thesis was looking at um, back um, massage and how that affects um, anxiety at the time of discharge out of critical care, Um, for patients with MI. And so I was really interested in research, and I uh, was looking for a PhD program and actually found a PhD program that was pretty basic science-oriented, as I was associated, and uh, looked for that type of program and went um, actually to a program in microbiology, immunology. And in the first um, rotation, lab rotation that I did, I was in an oral microbiology laboratory looking at dental caries and happened to pick up one of my nursing journals and there was an article, a review article about streptococcus mutans endocarditis, which was the organism I was working on in dental caries. So it was a really nice segue to begin looking at the genetics of streptococcus mutans as it's involved in um, endocarditis virulence. And as I finished up my PhD and began my faculty position and was looking at my faculty research, again, I was really interested in the oral organisms and systemic disease. And so coming again to my critical care background, I really started to look at ventilator-associated pneumonia and how oral organisms are involved in the pathogenesis of that disease. And again, like you and I were talking about before, it is in the minority, the nurses that end up in research. And I was just wondering, uh, as you've uh, gained more and more sort of a leadership position in these kinds of areas, what your perspective is maybe to recruit nurses to do get more involved in research. What are some of your thoughts in that area? Yeah, it, it is a, a sort of a different career trajectory because nurses are very often very tied to and committed to bedside care. And so uh, we often come up um, with long gaps between our undergraduate and our graduate education. Um, And so it it is a long kind of road. Our our graduates from PhD programs tend to be older than graduates of other PhD programs and later in getting their start on a research career. 
um, there is more and more interest in involving nurses at the bedside in research that's going on with kind of the um, the faculty or uh, nurses who are doctorally prepared kind of leading that effort and involving people at all levels of um, care in nursing. It is a difficult thing for nurses to make a transition from being very bedside care oriented and very involved in, in patients' lives and families' lives to kind of backing up to a research position where your goal is more long term and um, more for groups of patients than it is the good of the individual patient who's in front of you. And and as you've uh, as we've discussed also the the skill sets are, are they're they're different when you develop the secondary set set of skills you can use the nursing background to help come up with the kinds of questions to ask, right? Yes. Yeah, I think nurses um, nurse researchers tend to ask questions that are somewhat different from uh, colleagues in other disciplines. You know that we do tend to kind of pull on our our background from being at the bedside and um, intimately involved with patients and families. And that really does kind of influence the sorts of questions that we're interested in and the kinds of projects that we do. And um, one thing I haven't actually asked you about, but I I was thinking about just now is um, we're all excited about and proponents of the multidisciplinary team in the ICU. But does this happen in the research as well, collaboration with physicians and nurses on, on projects and things? That, it must, I've, I've seen some of the authorships have, have uh, physicians and nurses working together. Yeah, actually, that's been um, one of the most important parts of developing my program of research was finding good collaborators in other disciplines. So I have a long-term relationship with another nurse researcher, Mar- Dr. Mary Jo Grapp, who's also at VCU, But from the very onset of the research that I was doing, um, I also had physician colleagues, particularly um, Dr. Kurt Sessler, um, who just brings so much to the research. And we now um, also have colleagues who are in um, dental hygiene and in dentistry and in biomedical engineering. And having that perspective of other disciplines all kind of working together toward the same problem really does kind of make the work exciting, and I think we get a better research project. So it's a definite yes, then the multidisciplinary yes. research <laughs> does does happen. And and yeah. again, just just talking to you, the, the idea is that there will often be areas where they do clearly overlap, like patient safety, yes. where it will be a combination of a physician and a nurse and a respiratory therapist who would be the ones that would say, you know, how how much how well are we sticking with the VAP bundle that kind of thing where everybody's interested in in finding the answer right yeah and I think the the real trick to interdisciplinary research is finding a problem that is broad enough that we all can be good contributors to it that everybody's it doesn't interested really, yeah everybody's interested in no one discipline really owns the answer right and um, you know I've learned working with you for some of the questions about. Uh, even answering some of the simple questions like the head of the bed being elevated, it matters, here's the data that shows that it matters, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. One of the, um, so one of your specific uh, areas of expertise has been in um, oral hygiene and uh, focusing in on oral hygiene and its relation to ventilator-associated pneumonia. And, uh, you know, I've been looking over some of your, your recent important papers, and I was wondering if you could take a, take a few minutes and share with the members of SCCM some of your, uh, some of your important results. Yeah, and, and we really have been interested in oral care for a long period of time. Um, and it was a project that started... Uh, with interest from a bedside nurse, you know, who said, it, 
are we doing this well? Does it matter that we're doing it? And in that very first project where we looked at um, just kind of documenting what happened in terms of oral hygiene in the intensive care unit, um, we did have a dental hygiene collaborator who um, helped us with looking at oral health and particularly with dental plaque and how it accumulated in the ICU. We did a small project that showed that um, dental plaque um, was increased over time and the amount of saliva in the mouth decreased over time so that um, or oral organisms were able to grow better and we actually found more organisms in the mouth and more dental plaque. So how did you, you see you would, what were some of the technical techniques of quantitating like the plaque or was it the number of bacteria and all that? How do you do that? Well, we actually, because we didn't want the um, bedside nurses to really track on how we were quantifying it, we used um, a dental disclosing solution that only shows up under UV light. Mm. So you know how when um, you were a kid and you would chew the little red tablets Mm -hmm. and you could see where the plaque was on the teeth? This was a similar solution, but it only showed up under ultraviolet light. So our dental hygiene um, collaborator came in and assessed the plaque every day, looking at percent of each tooth surface that was covered in plaque. Wow. So that we got a dental plaque score on every surface of every tooth. So you really um, could quantitate this then, You right? really can quantitate wow. it, yeah. And and is the idea that... The, the decrease in saliva is, was ca- causation of the increased, or, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, it's probably more complicated than that, but saliva has um, several functions. One, it kind of bathes the mouth, and it helps to reduce the amount of dental plaque. It also distributes a lot of immune components that help to control the growth of the organisms in dental plaque. So xerostomia actually is a pretty big risk factor for increases in dental plaque and for dental infection. So, and I was wondering, you've um, found some recent important data looking at the issue of chlorhexidine and toothbrushing, and I was wondering if you could talk, talk yes, a little bit about that. Yes, once we had this relationship among um, dental plaque increasing at um, proportional to what happened it, with increases in the clinical pulmonary infection score, which is a way to score ventilator-associated pneumonia, um, the next thing that we did was to design an intervention study. Um, looking at um, a two-by-two factorial design that tested toothbrushing, chlorhexidine, both of those together versus a control group who had just usual care in the ICU. And our um, research people did all of the interventions, so we knew that the toothbrushing was well done um, and was consistent. And when we did that, my prediction was that the be- the group who would have the best reduction in VAP scores would be those who got toothbrushing and chlorhexidine. Um, but the results that we got were actually pretty surprising because chlorhexidine alone was effective in reducing risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia. And toothbrushing really was not effective in that and, in fact, didn't add anything at all to the chlorhexidine. So this was surprising results. It was surprising, not what I um, had anticipated at all. And I think that what happened there is that the chlorhexidine really does have an antimicrobial effect, so you were actually killing organisms. With the toothbrushing, I think we just were um, moving them around to some extent. And mm. although you can reduce the amount of organisms and kind of get them out with the mechanical action of the toothbrush, 
you haven't really killed anything. And so the organisms that are there begin to grow again the minute you pull the toothbrush out of the mouth. And I think that's why it was less effective. And so one of the questions that um, I've been fascinated by, uh, as many of us are, is that translation from an important piece of research like this to changing standards of care. And uh, what is your perspective on the current standard practices for oral hygiene in, in most ICUs in this country, and, and, and what do you think they should be? Well, interestingly, um, the um, Institute for Healthcare Improvement actually added chlorhexidine to the ventilator bundle um, in 2010, in part um, based on all of the research that's been done in chlorhexidine, but they did cite our study, so that was good. I think when I talk about our results, people think that I don't think toothbrushing is important. I do think it's important. It, I think it's important for patient comfort. It's probably um, important for reducing the amount of inflammation in the mouth. Um, it's important because these patients are really dry and xerostomic. Um, I just don't think we can um, tout it as a ventilator-associated pneumonia prevention strategy anymore. Right. And again, as, as we were discussing before, you know, we all brush our teeth and we're not doing it to prevent pneumonia. We're doing it for oral hygiene, right? right? Right, right. And so I think it's still important for oral hygiene and it's important for patient comfort. But I, I don't think we can make a case that it's important in ventilator-associated pneumonia prevention. And you were mentioning to me about the, the, there is sort of a standard kit that has the uh, chlorhexidine in it that most ICUs use. Or, mm -hmm. or there are ICUs. a couple of commercial products that include a disposable toothbrush, uh, chlorhexidine, et cetera, in a commercial kit. Um, the cost of those tends to be higher than it would be if you um, did it um, on your own. Uh, but the added convenience to the nurse can be worth the cost of the kit. How is the... Maybe this sounds silly. Is the chlorhexidine applied with a swab? Is that the idea? Yeah, we actually tested a couple of different ways of applying it before we did the research study. And we got better coverage and better reduction in the number of organisms by applying it with a swab than we did with spray. Hmm. So we and, did try the spray. And and what is what was what would be your recommendation uh, with your expertise in this about how many times a day this should be used? Well, chlorhexidine is actually an FDA-regulated product, okay. and in the U.S., the strength is 0.12%. Mm -hmm. um, some of the European studies have used 2% chlorhexidine. That's not what the FDA has approved in the U.S., and the dosing on it is every 12 hours. Every 12 hours. Mm -hmm. So if you have a 12-hour um, a nursing shift, so that would be a Q shift kind yeah. of situation. Yeah, and it's, it's a very um, quick intervention to do. It really doesn't take a lot of nursing time. Um, it also is a pretty inexpensive drug. Right. And I know that the same um, same drug uh, comes up in terms of uh, bathing the patient as well, and that has complex issues of resistance of gram-positives versus gram-negatives and things like that. Yeah. Right? It, yes. It, it, it has been a really popular bathing product um, as well. And then I, the, one of your other recent projects, which I also thought was fascinating, was uh, an article that you published on um, communication and teaching communication skills to nursing students, and I thought I'd give you an opportunity to talk about that. Yeah, this was a, a really um, exciting project that I did with um, one of our junior faculty, clinical faculty, um, Jean Ellen Zavertnik at Virginia Commonwealth University. And um, she was really looking for a clinical project, scholarship project, and um, we found a paper by um, Dr. Lauren published in Critical Care Medicine in 2006 that looked at using 
a standardized process uh, with a simulated family member to really teach and practice skills of interacting with family in the critical care unit. And so we looked at um, senior level nursing students and divided them into groups and let them either practice in the clinical simulation lab with a, a paid um, actor who was acting as a family member from a script, or um, just let them practice those skills in the clinical unit with their clinical instructor. And at the end of the semester, then, we tested them um, in the clinical simulation lab with a particular script and asked them to react to that. And the students who'd had the simulation experience really did much better. Um, and you were saying that this was a, um, you were replicating a study that had been done, we were saying, with medical students to work with nursing students, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. This was a, the original study took medical students and had them work with a simulated family member. Um, and we translated it to a group of um, senior-level baccalaureate nursing students. And, and again, is this something then that was uh, to change the practice of how they were taught, or was it integrated somehow into their curriculum? Well, we really thought that it was a more effective teaching strategy, and we also thought that um, in terms of changing practice at the bedside, having nurses who can communicate more clearly with family and more empathetically with family was an important piece. Now, communication, uh, communication in the ICU is, is very important. It's been something that you and I both are well aware of in the ICU. And, and miscommunication can, uh, once you lose that connection with a family member, it can be sometimes very difficult to get it back. And yeah. so uh, I remember another, uh, Karen Kirkhoff uh, had a paper, Choosing, choosing Your Words Carefully. Yes. And, yeah. and uh, making sure we're all saying what we think we're saying. Yeah, and the ability to practice that in an environment where you can make a mistake and not have it have an effect on a real relationship is really helpful to students. Well, Dr. Monroe, you've, uh, you've already taught me a tremendous amount, and specifically you've uh, taught me about uh, the AACN, and I'm looking forward to working with you to continue to have fostering that relationship between SCCM and AACN, and uh, I think it's going to be very, very good. So I'm very grateful. Today we've been speaking with Dr. Cindy L. Monroe, Ph.D., FAAN. She's currently a professor of nursing at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Nursing in Richmond, Virginia, and she's the co-editor of the American Journal of Critical Care. Thank you so much, Dr. Monroe, for being part of the podcast. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. Videos containing both slides and lectures from our courses are available 45 days after the live event. Events such as SCCM's world-renowned board review courses and even Congress are now available on demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org store or ask to speak with a customer service representative. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. 
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.